Our Father in heaven, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches for the time is near. Exalt the Lord Jesus, we pray, through the preaching and hearing of your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 6 and verse 9, this is God's word. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. A fixed principle governs our lives, my friends, as Christians, if you are a Christian. And it is very simply stated by a number of authors. And it is this. If God's kingdom is to come, ours has to go. And that's really what our lives are about, in essence, is a struggle in all of our hearts between two different kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And therefore, as we begin our studies of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus does something radical. He teaches us to pray in a God-centered way. And that is radical because it reorients us where we need to be. It recenters us. It recalibrates us because we are so prone to praying man-centered prayers. We're all guilty of it. Prayer is, is so misunderstood in so many sectors today. And so Jesus helps us tonight as he introduces us to God-centered prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer is part of this overall section of Matthew 6, 1 through 18, which now focuses our attention as Jesus teaches us what it means to be his disciple. That's the focus of the Sermon on the Mount. He now, he, he concentrates our attention on our duties before God. In Matthew 5, for the most part, he was showing us what it looked like to live before men. And now he goes through three different areas, which would have been the main areas of piety for ancient Judaism, giving, praying, and fasting. And he corrects all the misunderstandings, all of the superstitions, additions, traditions of the ancient Jews that had accreted themselves to what Jesus is going to show us. Now, we call this the Lord's Prayer, and as a few authors have noted, it's better called the Disciples' Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, uh, if you want to read Jesus' great prayer, it's found in John chapter 17, known as the Great High Priestly Prayer. This is a form of prayer for us as his disciples, and it breaks down pretty neatly into three sets of petitions. And the first three, as we'll study tonight, center on God, and then as we'll look at next week, the last three focus on our needs. But it's interesting to note that the Lord's Prayer begins and ends with God. It is a manifestly God-centered way to pray. So here's what Jesus teaches us. He teaches us that our prayers should concentrate on God's holy name, his heavenly kingdom, and his perfect will. Those will be our three headings this evening. Holy name, heavenly kingdom, and his will. And so look with me there in the first place at the holy name. Pray then like this, verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, if you look through the, the annals of human history, there's a great struggle in terms of religious consciousness. And it is this. You can see it well expressed in the gods of the Greek pantheon. 
to the mystical religions from the East and even in Western religious traditions. And the great dichotomy is this, either the God imagined by these traditions is just a bigger version of us, like the Greek gods, but they still were a lot like us. They committed adultery, they got drunk. A God that was too much like us or a God that was too different from us. So God is the ineffable beyond in that side of the religious tradition. He is so far exalted behind us and beyond us as to be unknowable. You would see this expressed in the German theologian books, uh, Rudolf Otto's uh, The Idea of the Holy, which was popular uh, a number of decades ago. But those, those are these two different poles in the religious realm. And only the Bible solves it, my friends. And Jesus tells us that God is at once near to us, but it also at the same time exalted and different from us. And that's what the Bible teaches on every page. And Jesus expresses it so compactly, doesn't he? He says, our Father, which art in heaven. And he, and he, he brings those two together by reminding us that the God we're calling upon is our Father. And some people have wanted to say that it's, it's something like Daddy, or if you read Abba in Romans 8, that that roughly translates to daddy. And that's not what it means. The, the Jews didn't really have a, a term that was that familiar. What it does mean is it's the address of a dear child to its father. We, we could express it like this, dearest father in heaven. And so Jesus is saying to us, there is the God who is in heaven. And he is my father manifestly in, first, in, in the first place. But he is your father through me. And again, this would have been radical for the Jewish mind of that day. It's still radical for us today because Jesus reminds us that prayer is about a relationship with God. It's calling out to the one who looks upon us as dear, beloved children. And all of us know as parents, and we spoke a little bit about this last week, that if you have a child who needs something, it's your delight to meet your child's need. And Jesus says, yes, and that's how the creator is with us, and he's in heaven, and he's all-powerful, and he's all-glorious, and he's sovereign, and he's all-knowing, and therefore he will hear and he will answer. But he tells us to pray specifically about our Father, hallowed be your name. It's the first petition here. Begins with an address to God as our Father in heaven. Then the first petition, hallowed be your name. What are we asking in this part of the prayer? We are asking that the highest goal of the kingdom is realized. What do we mean by God's name being hallowed or being made holy? We don't use that word hallowed really much anymore. What it's saying is, holy be your name. May your name be seen as holy. And remember, in the Bible, a name is not just a placeholder. It's not just a differentiating factor between two different individuals like so often our names are today. The names in the Bible reveal something of who the person is. And so Jesus, when he says, pray that God's name would be hallowed, he is asking that more of God's of, of who he is, is realized and celebrated and enjoyed and treasured in the world. And he says that's going to happen as disciples pray for this to happen in their lives. 
Now, if you were to read through the New Testament, you'll, you'll read the letters, for instance, of the Apostle Paul, and he begins almost invariably with an address like this, to the saints in X, Y, and Z city, Colossae, Corinth. Now, when you read that word saints, we, we've, that word's been kind of hijacked by the Roman Catholic Church to mean something of really, really exalted Christians, people who exist on a different plane of Christianity. And that's not at all what the original word means. Translated from the original, saints means holy ones. Think about that. When Paul writes that to the church at Corinth, which had problems with incest, adultery, homosexuality, greed, corruption, and false teaching, he begins that letter to the holy ones in Corinth, the saints. And you see what he's saying to us here when Jesus asks us to pray like this. He's saying, God is holy, and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the culmination of the revelation of God's name, as we'll see at the end of this gospel. And so Jesus is saying, you are already holy in principle. You're set apart to God the minute you become a Christian. And then your prayer life ought to be centered on this God who is great and exalted in heaven. And that he would reveal himself in his character through you, through me. It's an awesome thing to pray for. That people looking in the world would see us and say, God is like that. It can be very discouraging too, can't it? When you look at your life and say, There's not much of me that shows off God. Well, that's why Jesus says we need to pray. God wants to answer this prayer. Do you want to pray a prayer that will be answered tonight? Lord, make me more like Jesus. Make me more like yourself. Make me more a trophy and a treasure of your grace to be shown off in this world. So Jesus asks us to pray for God's name to be hallowed. And then he says, Ask for the heavenly kingdom. Look there again at verse 10. Your kingdom come. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Such a massive theme in the Gospels. Well, it's his glory. It's his reign over all creation. Therefore, it's a a spiritual entity. This is why the great hymn that I, I love this hymn, it's mistaken. It's written by 19th century, early 20th century liberalism. Lead on, O King Eternal. For not with drums loud clashing, a roll of stirring, not with swords loud clashing, roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. No, that was the error of liberalism, that if we work hard enough and cooperate with God, we'll bring about the kingdom of God on earth. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is why he'll say in the gospel of Luke, the kingdom of heaven is within you begins with individual disciples, that God's reign comes to those who are enthralled in the kingdom of Satan and translates them out of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1, into the kingdom of his beloved Son. From the thraldom of Satan and sin to the celebration of grace and mercy and love, and Jesus says the the kingdom of God is therefore spiritual in the first place. And then he's going to tell us again and again in the Gospels that the kingdom of God only comes about through the death and resurrection of the king. The kingdom of God, my friends, coming as we pray for this is not so much about us bringing the kingdom. It's really not about us at all. 
It's about God manifesting himself in our lives so that as we begin more and more to be conformed to Christ, to obey him, to follow after him, that kingdom begins to pervade every aspect of our lives. There are no Sunday-only Christians, my friends. Christianity is not a bifurcation of your life where you can kind of have this part of your life to yourself and then kind of do some spiritual stuff over here just to, to kind of get the, the spiritual feelings, the Christmas spirit. And I love Christmas. I don't want to sound like a Grinch. But, you know, it's not that. It's the kingdom is all-encompassing. It's a spiritual reality. It's centered on Christ. And my friends, therefore, it was inaugurated at his first coming. And the complex of events around that first coming his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his death-defeating resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and now his reign and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom coming. But it's partially realized in this age. That's how Paul speaks, isn't it? In this present evil age. Jesus says there's a sin that won't be forgiven in this age or the age to come. There's the two different ages separated by his return. And so in this present evil age, the kingdom is only partially realized, my friends. That's why he's going to compare it in Matthew 13 to a mustard seed. It looks insignificant, and then it begins to grow. How? As we pray, as it begins to come in our lives. As the kingdom's in conflict, we begin to see the decisive turning point in the battle where God's kingdom begins to come in our lives. Oh, my friends, what a simple question for all of us and yet so penetrating. Are we living for the king? Do we see our thoughts, our desires, our actions, and our wills more and more being brought into the sway of Christ, brought under his rule. One of the great errors of the modern church is that you can somehow pray a prayer, walk the aisle, be baptized, join a church, all of these things that in and of themselves might be good, but that somehow that's your fire insurance, and then you can go do whatever you please. No. If you are a disciple, you're a subject a subject of the great king. And the great king speaks to us and says, pray for my rule to be manifested in your life in everyday actions. Philip Ryken, commenting on this passage, put it like this when he talked about our everyday actions in the kingdom. He says, we are doing kingdom work, not because these things change the world necessarily, but because by doing them, we show how God has changed us. That's what he means. That's what Jesus is saying here. Go about your daily life as a subject of mine, as a citizen of a greater and heavenly kingdom, as he told Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. We don't belong to this world. We don't belong to the world's kingdom anymore. And Jesus says, yes, and pray for more of that to be manifest in your life. And then finally, Jesus says we should pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, another subject of great confusion 
throughout church history, but particularly in our day and age, is this question of knowing God's will. What is Jesus telling us to pray for here? And and we can divide, theologians have recognized in the scriptures, there's two different senses in which we can think of God's will, two perspectives on this one will. God doesn't, is not, you know, confused in his mind. He's not divided in his thinking. But the scriptures reveal to us something about these two different aspects of his will. Moses puts it like this, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but what is revealed belongs to us and our children that we may do these things forever. So there's these secret things, and, and, and theologians distinguish between God's preceptive will and his decretive will. Now that sounds like technical language. Let's unpack it quickly. His preceptive will has to do with his precepts, his revelation in his word of what he expects of us to believe and to do. That's why our catechism marvelously summarizes the Bible's message in the shorter catechism. It asks us, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Wonderful summary of God's decree, his perceptive will. The precepts he's revealed, summarized in the Ten Commandments. This is why if, if you're tonight thinking to yourself, well, I want to know God's will for my life or for this decision or for what I'm praying about right now. Well, the first place to start is the Ten Commandments. Does anything you're praying for violate the Ten Commandments? When we're, we're all looking for God's will to kind of be mysteriously zapped into us, we want, we want to be like Gideon. We want to put out the fleece and see it wet one day and dry the next, and we have this sign from heaven. My friends, God has given us plenty of signs, and they're summarized in his book. And so he says, if you want to know my will, study my word And so many of us, I think, want signs because we want to bypass the hard work of Bible study to discern God's will, to discern his precepts. But then we've spoken about God's decretive will. This is, we don't get all the details of this. This is his plan for everything. So God has decreed everything that comes to pass. Paul gives us a glimpse of this when he writes in Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as he he predestined us for adoption as sons before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays in his prayer, John 17, Father, let them see my glory the glory I had with you before the world began. Then Paul's going to go on in Ephesians 1 and speak about God's will being the the, the center and the focus and his will being worked out in all, everything that comes to pass, all of our lives, all of world history. And the central focus of this will of decree of what God has said, everything in the universe will serve this grand purpose is the redemption of his people in Christ. The centerpiece of world history, according to the scriptures, is the king being celebrated forever by the worship of his redeemed people and new creation. What is God up to in your life? Whatever else it is, we can be sure of this. 
everything that's happened to you, everything that will happen to you, everything that will happen in this nation's history, everything that will happen in world history, all of it serves the greater purpose of exalting Christ through everything. The world was made to show off God. That's why Jesus tells us to pray like this. Your will be done on earth because it's always done in heaven. When we have the veil pulled back, as it were, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5, and we see into the heavenly throne room, what do we see? Myriads and myriads of angels who day and night do the bidding of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Heaven is God-centered, and Jesus says, yes, and now the king has come and begun his conquest, and one day heaven and earth will be God-centered together. And so Jesus says, pray that we would know the will of God, and then do the will of God, follow his precepts, become more holy. And my friends, do you see here when he's telling us to pray for these things, he's not giving us a lecture on morals. He's not saying, do better, try harder, you can get this on your own steam. That's one of the great errors in interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, that this is somehow moral directives for a better society. No, 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 Jesus is saying, pray for these things because naturally you don't want them and I don't want them. Naturally, we are very man-centered. All of us are born, Charles Spurgeon said, as Arminians. Born thinking that we have free will to overcome God's will. Born thinking that we have the right to make a decision about Jesus, as it were. I make no mistake, you must decide for Christ. He's calling you tonight, if you're not a Christian, to come to him. But my friend, the Apostle John says it so clearly. We love because he first loved us. It's all him. It's all him from start to finish. And that's why Jesus says, you have to begin your prayers with God. And as I was studying this, I was so convicted that so much of my prayer skips this part. How many of us really, if you ask yourself, have adored God for more than a couple seconds when we go to prayer. I was reading Matthew Henry, the, the 18th century Puritan, this week, and he, he's got a whole book called A Method of Prayer. Highly commend it to you. And he's got this first section, and it's all, he's gathered together all the prayers of, of, of all the, really, the titles and attributes of God from Scripture to adore him. Page after page of scriptural references of adoring God. And I think so many times we just go right to prayer and we don't adore him, we don't celebrate him, we don't revel in him. Jesus is inviting us to a party here, as it were. He's inviting us to celebrate the one who's the maker of heaven and earth, who wants to bring all things under his sway and will one day, and in the meantime saying, celebrate him in your life. Pray for that to happen. And so what he's showing us is that a deep prayer life begins with meditating on who God is. These petitions that he's taught us will change us at a fundamental level. A fundamental level if we recognize that there is no 
hack for prayer. There's no shortcut to avoid being alone with God, laying aside distractions, taking in what his word says about him and meditating on it. Just thinking of Daniel 4.35, when he's going to humble the most powerful man in the world, and he says, I'm going to send you out and be like a beast of the field so that you know the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever he will. Translated, think about who he is. Nebuchadnezzar, when you walked out and looked on one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon, and you said, behold, Babylon that I have built. God says, no, I gave it to you. You don't have to be Nebuchadnezzar to have the spirit very much alive like that in us, don't, don't we? Look at what I've done. Look at me. And all of this prayer here, Jesus is saying, no, I want you to take your eyes off yourself. Take in God. Begin thinking about who he is from his word, and you'll begin to know him. He won't just be a nice idea. He'll be your father. And you may not have had the best earthly father. And the concept of father might be really hard for you. And Jesus says, here's a father who will never hurt you. Who will never let you down. Who will never grow impatient with you or tired of hearing from you. Here's a father that is truly a good father. That keeps his promises. And Jesus says, I want you to come and enjoy a relationship with this one. So, here's here's what we have to recognize. A fulfilling and lasting prayer life doesn't come from just a few hustled seconds per day. There's no hack. There's no shortcut. It's deeply abiding in the word and beginning our prayers with meditating and thanking God and adoring him for who he is. Try that this week when you pray. Again, you can access Matthew Henry's method of prayer online in six different translations. So you can sit there and read it and center your prayers that way. Last thing is this. The work of prayer, my friends, is a work of grace. Because the one teaching us to pray about the kingdom is in fact the king. Have you ever thought about that? He says, pray like this that your kingdom would come, God, and your will would be done. And here's the one who's going to do his will perfectly. Here's the one who cries out in prayer throughout his earthly ministry. Here's the one who comes to us and says, You don't want to pray this way. Therefore, I will be praying in your place. And I will be patient with you as I make you a God-centered, king-exalting, spirit-filled person. You see, when when, when Jesus invites us to pray like this and to enjoy a relationship with our Heavenly Father where the God who made everything will actually answer your prayers, do you believe that? And do you know, dear Christian, 
that you are a child of God, that the Father is pleased with you, that he loves you, that it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom, Jesus says, and that in his eternal plan, that will of decree, one of the aspects of that plan is that he'd send his son to live and die in your place to obey perfectly, to pray God-centeredly because you can't and I can't. So that at the end of it all, God-centered prayers come from a Christ-centered life. And a Christ-centered life begins when we recognize that the kingdom of self and Satan has to end. And aren't you tired of that? Isn't Satan a cruel master? Hasn't sin promised you so much and delivered nothing? Hasn't the promise of sin shown itself time and time again empty? Hasn't the idols, haven't the idols that we've erected shown themselves to be harsh taskmasters? And here we meet the king who says, I don't ask you to work for me like the idols will. I will work for you. I will obey in your place. I will pray for you so that you learn to begin to pray with me the way I taught you to pray. One of the founding professors of Westminster Seminary was a man by the name of Cornelius Van Til. He had a life motto. Godly, godly man, brilliant man, but what stands out the most from the life of Van Til is his godliness. And he had one life motto. It was in his office, three Latin words, ora et labora, pray and work. Marvelous summary of a God-centered, Christ-exalting, spirit-filled life. Pray to this one. Have his centeredness in your life and then know that you Go forth to labor in the kingdom as one who's loved as a child. Pray and work, Jesus says. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, make us, make us please, make us God-centered people. The dearest idol that we have known, help us to cast it from your throne in our hearts. Draw us to yourself this evening, we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.